This morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin our time in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, as Scott read for us. And we're going to uh, focus on things a little bit different than is typical. We are going to allow two of the characters of the story to be uh, objects of reflection and consideration uh, in the midst of the story. I want to go back to a passage that is is actually written a, a bit later, actually. It's a, a, from the letter of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul would write to Corinth, where our story begins in chapter 18. It begins in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians he writes in chapter 3, verse 6, I, that is Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Okay? So you get the story, these two characters that we see in our passage today. Later on, Paul, writing back to Corinth, says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, this book of Acts that we've been spending many months in together, it's had a number of powerful players that have played various roles during the course of the story. As we consider these many chapters of the missionary journeys of Paul, even just recently, we've had the Apostle Paul, right? And he's a, a well-educated, highly religious Jew. And he was a, becomes a bold missionary, a faithful apostle sent by Jesus himself. He served in the role of planter of the gospel in the cities of the Gentiles as he works his way through these cities that we're learning the names of. So we work through these passages. Then we have Barnabas, right? Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. All right? This is quite a guy, quite a part of the story of the establishment of the early church. He's the one who brought the apostle Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem after his conversion. He, he spoke up for him and say, this, this man is called by God. He becomes Paul's ministry companion in his first missionary journey. We are told that he is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. These are some powerful players in the story. This morning, we meet Apollos. Now, Apollos, I have an affinity for. There's something about this guy that catches my attention. I know that he actually caught Martin Luther's attention to the degree that his estimation was that Apollos might have been the author of Hebrews, all right? This is quite a guy that would be well-esteemed. Apollos, in our passage today, we see in verse 24 that he's a Jew from Alexandria. And in the following verses there in our passage, verses 24 and 25, we see that he's five things at least. He's an eloquent man. He's competent in the scriptures. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. It's quite a guy, a powerful player in the story of the establishment of the church. And we're told that where Paul went and planted, Paul then watered that seed. And a fruitful harvest grew up in many of those places. Now, as we've worked our way through Acts, we've also seen Luke, right? Luke, who ends up being the author of the book, and he was a travel companion with Paul in much of his journeys. That's why, one of the reasons why we see sometimes he's talking about what they did 
And sometimes he's talking about what we did. That's because Luke is there in the story. We saw Silas. Silas is Paul's traveling companion after the departure of Barnabas and John Mark. He continues on with the apostle Paul. We see Timothy, right? He's a disciple of Paul, and he would become an elder and a strong leader in the church, even have a few letters written to him to encourage him in the ministry. We have some powerful players in the story. And then we have these two. They show up actually just a little bit earlier in our passage at the beginning of chapter 18. We have Priscilla and Aquila. This unassuming couple in the story. They're mentioned in a number of instances and a variety of circumstances in the scriptures. And what we see is they are a consistent, if little known, fixture in the story of the Spirit's work in the spreading of the gospel. But it isn't, isn't that the case most often with those who are faithful. They are a, a consistent, if little known, fixture in the spreading and the establishment of gospel ministry. Most of us aren't Paul, right? Most of us aren't Apollos or or Barnabas. We aren't planters or waterers. We are unseen, faithful cultivators of the soil of the souls. An ongoing work work of, of partnership in the gospel. I want to go back and look at uh, actually the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Look at it with me. The first three verses of this chapter, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's why they find themselves in Corinth. And he went with he and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Aquila. Aquila, he's a native of Pontus, that's the northern part of Asia Minor. We've been in Galatia and that area, it's just north of that region. He's married to a woman woman who is uh, named Prisca, but she's also known by Priscilla, which means little Prisca, all right, diminutive form. And then we have this little bit of information about them. We're told that they're tent makers, and they become tent makers with Paul. Paul goes and seeks them out. Perhaps they were believers before, but if not, being tent makers of the same trade in that city, they were bound to meet each other and hear the gospel. And what we see is that as Paul encounters Aquila and Priscilla, they offered him work, place for base for work in Corinth. They offered him a home. They offered him fellowship in ministry. So I would ask you, in each of the cities that Paul went to, what would the ministry of Paul have been without the hospitality of people like Priscilla 
and Aquila and others like them that appear in the story, persons of peace and partners in the gospel who come alongside of these planters and waterers like Paul and Apollos. Now, what we find is they they became enmeshed together. They become deeply partners in the gospel, and and they actually go and uh, they partner with Paul and travel with him from Corinth to Ephesus. And Ephesus becomes an important base for ministry in the region. They stayed in Ephesus, even though Paul moved on from there to complete his second missionary journey and make his way all the way over to Antioch. But Priscilla and Aquila, they remain in Ephesus there. Later, when Paul begins his third missionary circuit, after going over to Antioch, he begins his circuit again. He comes first to Ephesus, and the passage says later on that he stayed in Ephesus for three years. We'll see that in coming weeks. Well, Paul, when he stayed there for three years, he likely stayed with Priscilla and Aquila during the course of that time. Now, Paul mentions Priscilla and Aquila in three other passages of Scripture. Consider Romans 16, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Here's what he calls them. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Then you have 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. From these passages, we can see that this husband, wife, ministry team, they're, they're fellow workers in the first passage. They offer hospitality for the church and its ministers in the second passage, and they're genuine friends and companions with that planter, the apostle Paul. Now, that's just a little bit of background, pretty much just about everything we know about Priscilla and Aquila in the scriptures, but it's a, it's a powerful collection of realities about this couple. But what we see in our passage this morning, and especially the second half near the end of Acts chapter 18, we see Priscilla and Aquila in their encounter with Apollos. Well, let's understand the context of the encounter. Apollos is clearly a gifted teacher. As we heard Scott reading through and the five things that we know about him. And, and he's not just a, a gifted teacher. He's teaching what is good. And he's teaching it with some good clarity and understanding. But it also appears in some way that the Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist and had received the baptism of John, but in some fashion, not the baptism of, of Jesus, it would seem. There seems to be some sort of connection with the passage that comes after at the beginning of chapter 19. We see some similarities there, but there seems to be better clarity for Apollos regarding the Holy Spirit, if you know that passage. In spite of his boldness and the accuracy of the teaching about Jesus, there was some aspect of Apollos' understanding that was incomplete. We're not told exactly what it is, but there's something that is incomplete about his understanding of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. Now look at verse eight, chapter 18, verse 26 in the passage. We see where this encounter really takes place. 1826. 
he, that is Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They explained the way of God more accurately. Don't miss what happened. Apollos, he's a learned man from Alexandria. Alexandria, a great place of much learning and wisdom. It's sort of the, the African Athens. You might even say that Athens is just the European Alexandria. I mean, it's the place of the great library of Alexandria and great learning and philosophy and understanding. And this is the place from which Apollos comes. Apollos, the learned man from Alexandria, is willing to be taught by tent makers. Don't miss that. That is a, that is a powerful happening in our passage. Clearly, at the center of Apollos' passion was a simple desire to know God. That is a beautiful thing in a teacher. Someone who simply wants to know God and discovers that it's okay to be wrong if you have the humility to be corrected by the truth. And that's exactly what Priscilla and Aquila do. They pull him aside and they correct him gently and he appears to receive the correction and he's even sent off from that place as a sort of missionary off back to Corinth. The passage doesn't tell us at what specific point Apollos needed correction, but we do know that the heart of the teaching of the Apostle Paul in his journeys was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you can't get that wrong. That's crucial, and we have to have good accuracy about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish believers often found a stumbling block in the necessity of the suffering of Jesus. Why would the Messiah suffer? He's supposed to be the victorious redeemer, right? Why is the Messiah suffering on a cross? It was often a stumbling block for the Jews. And perhaps that was the case for Apollos as well. Perhaps it was at one of these points that Apollos was in error. Perhaps as a disciple of John the Baptist, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. You remember, John the Baptist was clear that there is another one who is to come. And when he came, he pointed to Jesus. He knew that Jesus was Messiah. But had he come to a full understanding of what that Messiah is, that the suffering was necessary to take the place of sinners for the forgiveness of their sin. Perhaps he didn't fully understand that the resurrection of Jesus was an indication that all who believe are baptized into his name. And if they're baptized into, not John the Baptist, not the, the baptism of repentance, but actually baptized into what Jesus has accomplished, forgiveness of sins is real and his eternal life is in his resurrection. Perhaps there was some confusion there. In any event, Apollos humbles himself and receives instruction in regards to the gospel. It's a beautiful thing to see humility in a godly man like Apollos. But as beautiful and compelling are the qualities of Apollos, we see quite a collection of beautiful qualities also in Priscilla and Aquila. Even in this episode, we see a few things, right? 
We see hospitality. We see them sort of taking them aside and, and owning a, a time with them. We see faithfulness. We, we see knowledge. Priscilla and Aquila knew the way of God such that they were able to teach it to him. And we see encouragement in this couple being willing to pull aside this teacher, this learned man, and, and to teach him the way of God and send him off with greater clarity about the gospel. They take him aside privately, generously, to explain what was missing in his understanding. Priscilla and Aquila aren't in the records of Scripture much, but their presence in this story is persistent and it's faithful. I I would propose this, that without the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and dozens, perhaps even hundreds of others throughout the witness of the early church, there would be no later church. Without partners in the gospel, on the ground, in their ministry, in their households, in their workplaces, in their communities, there is no growing up of the church, even in the book of Acts, but rather it's the Holy Spirit's work, not just in Paul, not just in Apollos, not just in Barnabas or Peter. It's the Holy Spirit's work in the believers, in their households, holds. I had to to make the connection this morning as I was thinking about this. I'm like, Priscilla, this, this, this woman in the church, much like many of the mothers and the women of the church who are here today, offered such wonderful teaching and hospitality in their fellowship together and encouragement and clarity, just like so many of the women at Cross Point Coast do. And it's encouraging to see you laboring as partners in the gospel so faithfully in your households, in your neighborhoods, in your communities, and in your workplaces. So I want to take a moment and step back. I want to reflect and consider with this section of Scripture as our backdrop. And I want to ask this question, all right? What is the purpose of our lives? What is the purpose for the way that we spend our time? Westminster Catechism beautifully suggests that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Very simple answer to the question, what is the purpose of our lives? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this using up, the spending, the exhaustion of our lives is to the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him as our lives are poured out for him. And Priscilla and Aquila are quiet reminders to us of leveraging our place in life our circumstances in life, our homes, the decision of which city to live in, right? As they make that decision for the sake of the gospel, for the purpose of God. They make all those decisions while doing incredible, while God in their midst and around them are doing incredible, miraculous things, bearing witness to himself all around them as they are in this very simple, very daily, very persistent and faithful work. We often say that our life is made up of our time, talent, and treasure, and and our life in Christ is, is the contribution of our time, talent, and treasure in love for the sake of the glory of God and our enjoyment of Him. So what is the purpose? What is the purpose of the pouring out of our life? What is the purpose of the pouring out of our time, talent, and treasure? 
I go back to an article that I found just recently, uh, re-found again, read it originally in 2008. It's an article by author and speaker Sky Jethany, and he wrote this article entitled Mission and the Recession. Now, you remember in 2008, our nation was in the thick of a serious recession, and we were asking hard questions about the use and existence of our time, talent, and treasure. In the article, he suggested that it is time that we learn how to build our lives and our mission on our core time rather than our leisure time. I want to explain some of what he meant, and I hope this is helpful to you this morning. Here's the breakdown of our time that he offers. He says this, we have about 40 hours for our jobs, all right? And we all know that's a bit of an understatement, all right? We have about 40 hours for our jobs. We have about 40 hours in addition to maintain our lives. Just consider the amount of time that is spent in meals, family, commuting, cleaning, health, hygiene, 40 hours for work and 40 hours simply to maintain our ability to keep doing those things. He suggests that that's something like our core time. We're stuck doing it no matter what, right? That leaves if we have also... Let's just be generous and give ourselves 56 hours of sleep, all right? 56 hours of sleep, 80 hours of core time that leaves us in our week with about 32 hours of leisure time. 32 hours. Sweet. That'd be a good week, right? Well, in contemporary cultural Christianity, the conventional wisdom is to suggest something like this, 32 hours. Some of you are like, I don't get 32. It's more like 25. Okay, let's just say that you have 25 hours of leisure time. The conventional wisdom is to suggest that you ought to use your leisure time, therefore, like this. Why don't you turn off your TV one night a week and join a Bible study? Or how about this? Why don't you give up a week of vacation and go on a mission trip? Let me suggest those are two good ideas. What about this one? Why don't you cancel a league membership and volunteer for a church program? That's the conventional wisdom that we we have our core that we're sort of stuck with. They just get used the way they're used. And then we have our leisure time and we can use a portion of that for our God and for ministry. You see, church and Christian ministry is relegated to the use of our leisure time if we have 25 hours left over. And, you know, that could work. That could work in an affluent society. But are we really guaranteed 32 hours or even 25? What if you have to get a second job? Now what happens to that 32? What if you have some extra needs around the home and that time gets sucked up there? What if your company cuts back on vacation time? Well, there goes the mission trip, right? Then what? How do you contribute to the mission of the church if all of your leisure time is taken away? And in 2008, a lot of people were asking those questions. And maybe some of you are asking the same question here this morning. You're like, you know, you can talk about leisure time all you want, but I feel like the whole thing is just core time. It just all gets used up. Well, what if we also remember that leisure time is a modern invention, all right? The idea of leisure time, extra time, free time is a bit of a modern idea. Most of the world, even today, doesn't even know that idea exists, and maybe they're better off for it. 
I mean, consider Priscilla and Aquila in our passage. It's very unlikely that they had 32 hours in their week to do whatever they wanted. It's very unlikely. They were working all the time. They had so many things that were maintenance items that their technology and appliances didn't just take care of for them. That means their humility. That means their hospitality, their service, and their encouragement largely took place when? During the course of their core time, during the course of their work, during the course of the maintenance of their lives. And they were doing it together. I look at the ministry of Paul as well. Notice where he's been meeting people in the recent chapters. Notice where he is. Yeah, yes, he, he spent a good deal of time teaching the people in the synagogues. But do you know where else we see him? We see him in the marketplace. And we see him in places of community conversation. We see him also there in those core time sort of places. In his involvement with Priscilla and Aquila, we see that he continues his work as a tent maker. I wonder what kind of conversations they had there. How did Priscilla and Aquila come to know what they were able to hand on to Apollos? It has to have been over the time that they spent together making tents. The core time of their week. Consider the way the Old Testament speaks of what belongs to the Lord. Does it say, after you get done with all the things you kind of have to do to exist, and you find yourself with a little free time, then a portion of that time belongs to the Lord and His glory and His joy and His mission. Is that what we learn in reading the Old Testament? Do we see something more like this? As you harvest your wheat, give to the Lord. You see, they didn't give from a paycheck at the end of the week. They gathered, and some of what they gathered belonged to the Lord. As you gather for a fellowship meal, sacrifice to the Lord. As you walk and as you work, speak of the Lord. We read that just last week in Deuteronomy 6. You see, they are about the Lord, and there is about about his mission during the course of, of their lives. Now, if you look at contemporary church's approach, it looks something more like this. Court time first, then leisure time, and God gets a portion of the leisure time, right? Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they blow up that notion with a demonstration of the giving of the whole of their lives. Look at the story again. They opened their home to Paul. That's a core time reality. They opened their tent-making business to Paul. They opened their lives to Apollos. And later we see that they brought the church into their home, you see. I want to take a moment to just reflect and consider, with the help of Sky Jethany, a bit of what core time Christian mission looks like. Sky asks the question of the relationship between our core time and the Christian mission. What, what if we could tap into the 80 plus hours we spend every week on the job or with our families or engaging in life's responsibilities? What if we tapped into that time for the sake of the mission of the gospel? This would require a fundamental shift in the way we think about the nature of mission. Jethany offers a few implications. I'll, I'll mention just five of them. The first implication he offers is this. It would mean helping people to see the missional dignity 
of ordinary work. Communicating that their jobs matter to Christ and his kingdom. Not just what happens within the walls of the church. And let's remember, the walls of our church are a place where daily life happens. We're reminded when we gather to bring the church into this context, that this context is a context for mission. Normally, all the other days of the week. And I know some of you work in these very sorts of places. Contexts for mission. Consider the tent-making work of Priscilla and Aquila. Was that a break from Christian mission, or did they leverage it for the sake of the gospel? How much of their time was wrapped up in that work, and were they faithful? Do you realize that Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, they were faithful to bring shelter to the people that lived in their communities, in their tent-making endeavors? Secondly, It would mean elevating the role of family and other household relationships as vehicles for spiritual growth and missional engagement. Elevating the role of family and household relationships. Yes, raising children. Yes, caring for aging parents honors God. And it advances the kingdom just as, if not more than, institutional church programs. Investment in those households and in those relationships. Yes, praying for and encouraging roommates. Opening your home to those who are in need. Adoption and fostering are meaningful uses of the contribution of your time, talent, and treasure. It concerns me every time in the partnership classes when we come to that contribution rhythm and we begin to talk about how at Crosspoint we believe in the contribution of your time, talent, and treasure. And I can see in everyone's eyes of thinking, well, how can I serve in the church? And I'm thinking, no, 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 that is completely not what we mean. What we mean is how can you serve as the church, you see? The contribution of your time and talent and treasure in the places that I don't get to go to go and proclaim the gospel and to go for the labor for the sake of Christ. It's our business to make disciples. And so we have to ask, is that taking place in my home? Is that taking place in my house, in my apartment? Is it taking place in my neighborhood and in my dorm? Third, it would mean not extracting people from their lives and communities to engage in church programming. Not extracting people from their lives and communities to engage in church programming, but rather equipping them to live in communion with Christ in the context in which God has placed them. Now, this is a major impulse for the establishment of one of our institutional realities, our community groups. You see, we believe that it's good for believers to gather together. We believe that the scriptures teach the gathering of the church for normative worship and normative teaching. And we don't even mind that you travel a bit to be with believers who worship the Lord and are equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that that's good, what you've done this morning. But we also believe that ministry is by and large what takes place close to your home, neighborhoods, and workplaces. So we are striving and working hard to establish community groups closer and closer to your communities, that you would not be extracted from them for church programming, but rather you would be sent into them for missions. Fourth, 
It would shift the focus of Sunday worship away from mission and outreach to a time of celebration and encouragement for Christians who are engaged in mission the other six days of the week. You see, we don't want to think of Sunday morning primarily as as ministry or evangelism, though we hope that ministry and evangelism is taking place. We hope that the gospel is being preached. Yes, we do serve one another when we gather. We do set up, we play instruments, we preach, we teach children, we offer hospitality, we pray for one another, and so many other things that take place in the contribution of our lives when we gather. But the primary purpose for all of those things is to worship the Lord and to encourage the church in the ministry of the gospel during the course of the rest of your week where evangelism takes place and where the ministry of the gospel takes place in those places. Fifth, it would mean an adjustment of what the church counts as growth. An adjustment of what the church counts as growth. Not only institutional expansion, programmatic growth, but stories of ordinary people, you know, like Priscilla and Aquila. Faithful to Christ at home, faithful to Christ at work, faithful to Christ in school, and everywhere life happens. If we see that, we say, that's fruitful growth. Thank you, God, for being at work in our midst. It's hard to count. It's hard to put on a spreadsheet. But make no mistake, when the elders get together, it's what we talk about. It takes up the majority of our time, recounting the stories of the fruitfulness taking place in your lives, in the context of your ministry. We do pay attention to how many people gather on Sunday mornings, and we're thankful that 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 number continues to grow, but that number is not a measure of faithfulness of the ministry of the church. That's why we say, go and be the church. Gather and be the church is the call to worship. Go and be the church is the call to mission. That can only be measured by observing stories, health, growth, and faithfulness of the church directly relates to its faithfulness in mission. Now, the story of Cross Point Coast has been a story highly impacted by the life of Priscilla and Aquila. One of the reasons why I stepped aside, there's so many wonderful things we could and perhaps even should have paid attention to in our passage this morning. But I looked back on some notes that that I had made in the reflection upon planting the gospel before coming here and planting the church here in Vieira. And I saw Priscilla and Aquila are so influential in the shaping of the way that we go about ministry here. We believe wholeheartedly in the church gathered. We do. Just as they did when they brought the church into their home. If they didn't believe in the church gathered, they wouldn't have gathered the church into their house so that Paul could send greetings from the church that meets in their house later on. But we also believe in the church scattered, as they did in their tent-making work, in their hospitality for Paul, in their investment in Apollos. It's what we mean when we say that there is no higher ministry in the church. There is no place to be appointed. There is no role to fill. There is no service that is needed more highly than partnership in the gospel. Now go and be the church. Some of you have been sitting here for a long time and perhaps you're even 
becoming a bit weary with your hand up saying, hey, what can I do? And, and the word that we have to say is, first of all, there are probably ways where we could equip you better, and your hand is up for a reason. We haven't done our job well. But on the other hand, the answer to what can you do is you can ask a coworker to read the scripture with you. You can pray with your family and with a neighbor. Right after the service, you can try and stand up quickly, look around you, and see who seems to be on the fringes. Who needs to be invited to lunch this week? What can you do? You can go to lunch and enjoy the ministry of the gospel that takes place there during the course of ordinary life. I hope that this very normal, daily, cultivating ministry has captured your imagination. You're scratching your head a little bit saying, what would that look like in the course of my particular life? You see, I can't tell you that. I don't know what your 80 and more hours look like. You do. The people in your community group and in your household do. And so I hope your imagination is stoked and you're considering that you're reading, you're praying, and you reflect and converse together over those core hours of how God would use faithful and explicit gospel mission in those places. As you go into your week this week, go into a fully commissioned ministry of the gospel. As we often say at Cross Point Coast, you, the disciples, are the face of the church. I'll be honest, for, there's a reason why, for those of you who have been around here for a long time, we, we didn't have any signs out front, all right? And we finally got these like incredibly powerful drawing, advertising, teardrop signs that you can barely even read as you drive by. It just doesn't bother me at all. Uh, maybe a bit naive back in the day, I said, we'll never have a sign in front of our church. I don't want anyone to come there because they saw a sign. And some of you here are here because you saw a sign. So I'm like, "Ah, okay, we'll we'll do signs. (laughs) But I'll tell you what we desire. We desire that you would be the sign that people read. That you would be the face of the church. That you would make Jesus known and make disciples where You are, there are almost no one in our county drives along this road. They're doing lots of other things on a Sunday morning, but you are where they are during the course of the week. And I hope that you're also encouraged by the humility of Apollos. There's nothing, nothing greater or of more value than knowing Jesus. And that seemed to be the case for Apollos. He wasn't something great, Jesus was, and he wanted to know him. So he's willing to be humbled before him. That we allow the scriptures and the counsel of others who are mature and faithful among us to bear witness of the gospel to us is a beautiful thing. That the scriptures would be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, the scriptures say. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's my prayer for you. But most importantly, as we close... Most importantly, even above the call to mission, I hope that you will believe in the gospel yourself and the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that you would allow the death and resurrection of Jesus to correct your heart and mind, not just so you could repeat it just right, but so you would believe and be transformed and forgiven and given the eternal life that is found in Christ alone so that your life might then become one that is lived to the glory of God.
and the joy that we find in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the call that you have given the believers to join you in what is your mission in this world. We belong to you. We've been bought with a price. Our our life is not just something you have given to us, but that's something that is found in you. So Lord, I pray that we would walk as a people who the whole of our life is in you. Right now, we may or may not have clarity as to what in the world that actually means on the ground. What does Monday look like? What does the rest of Mother's Day look like? What does standing up right after the service and looking around the room look like? But I pray, Lord, that your spirit would go with us, that you would equip us, that you would convict us and challenge us, that you would use those who are mature in our midst to show us. Thank you for the Priscilla's and Aquila's and others who are right in our midst this morning. We're mature among us and we can learn much from. Lord, that we would grow up to glorify you in our neighborhoods, that we would believe that there are yet people in this county who belong to your name. If we would only preach the gospel to them, that they would know you. Thank you, Lord. We we love you. We thank you for these godly examples. But Lord, we thank you that there are no superheroes in the scripture, but Christ alone. He alone who saves. And so, Lord, our trust is in you to work in us and to transform us to your glory and to bear witness to your grace. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.